you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. Susie Essman has played the sassy Susie Green for all 10 seasons of the critically acclaimed HBO comedy series Curb Your Enthusiasm and is in production for season 11. Her hilarious bouts of withering sarcasm and uninhibited insults have become her character's trademark. The Los Angeles Times calls Susie the most lyrical purveyor of profanity on television. She makes the entire cast of The Sopranos look like rank amateurs. It really is a gift. The New York Times called Susie one of the most vivid characters in the show, whose off-color tantrums have become an audience favorite the way Kramer's clumsy entrances once were. Susie's streetwise vernacular is perfectly suited for her life in Manhattan, where she has been a veteran of the world of stand-up comedy for 37 years. She has appeared in her own half-hour HBO comedy special, made numerous appearances on Broad City, The View, and The Tonight Show, to name just a few of her many television credits. She has also acted in numerous films. Susie resides in New York with her husband and one-eyed Shih Tzu. What's his name or her name? His name is Popeye. Does the so I have to do with? Yeah, well, you know, when we first got him, I, I researched all the one-eyed people and I was shocked by how many, that, I mean, you know, we all knew Sammy Davis and, and you know, a couple of, but there was many others that I had no idea all these years. Claude Rains, for example, only had one eye. I would have loved to have called him Claude, but my husband wanted Popeye. What can I tell you? I, I think there could be a Claude in your future of one eye. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope that he has uh, been a wonderful support one eyed animal during this entire last year of bizarreness. He's amazing. But what's so funny to me is when I'm in, uh, in New York City in our apartment there, when I'm in the elevator, people will say to me, does it bother him that he only has one eye? He's a fucking dog. He, he doesn't know he only he's not thinking, oh, I can't read the New York Times. He's a dog. If he <laughs> could read the New York Times. Bothered, yeah, but even if it did bother him, he's not telling me. He can't speak. He only <laughs> knows life with one eye. This is all that exactly. he's aware of. For all he exactly. knows, there are no two-eyed dogs. That's amazing. That's why, that's why dogs are so incredible because they don't complain and they don't covet things that other people have. They're just, they just are, and they're happy to just, you know, get pet and fed and that's their life. <laughs> T-shirt that I love that says dogs are my favorite people. And I totally agree. Yes. <laughs> so sadly moving off dogs, which I don't ever want to do, but we are going to get to talk about you. You have an amazingly impressive career, comedian, actress, writer, television producer, what interested you initially about the entertainment industry and how did you get started? Oh, wow. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actress. I never thought of being a stand-up comic because when I was growing up, first of all, I didn't see too many women, um, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show, which is where we all saw comedy in those days. We didn't have cable. And I wanted to be like, like a sketch character actress, like a Broadway musical comedy person, but I couldn't really sing or dance. And then I kind of was influenced a lot by Carol Burnett and doing that kind of sketch comedy. Um, and 
I went to college. I was not a theater major. I was too intimidated and scared. And then I graduated and I started taking acting classes and I found it really pretentious and, and ridiculous. And I just went several years without knowing what to do. I was just completely lost and had no idea what to do. And in deep depression and waitressing and really uh, kind of hit rock bottom when friends that I worked with that I waitress, I used to make the work interesting to myself by going back into the kitchen and doing impressions of all the, the patrons, it, you know, kept it fun for me. Um, and friends that I worked with waitress with kind of convinced me that I should get on stage and, and do it. And I put three minutes together. I used to just do these characters. I didn't speak in my own voice. And, um, I went on like a, a an open mic night and I was never so scared in my life. And I never, I thought I'd never do it again. It was just kind of a lark and a dare. And there were these guys there that were opening up a comedy club, Bert Levitt and Paul Herzig. And they were opening up this club called Comedy U on University and 13th Street in, in the village in New York City. And uh, they came over to me after my set and they said, we're opening up a club. We'd love to have you. We, we thought you were great. We'd love to have you come work with us. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave him my number. I never got back on stage. I was mortified that I had ever done it. And about three or four months later, they called me and said, remember us? We finally opened. Would you come down and do 10 minutes? And like an idiot, I said, yes, because 10 minutes is a really long time when you're just starting doing stand-up. It's a really long time. And I so I wrote 10 minutes and then they just kept on putting me on. And I never went to any other clubs because I was too intimidated and scared. And after about three months working there and developing and meeting a lot of different comedians um, and, and kind of getting a feel for it, I realized that it was what I was born to do. And I had no idea. It was all just happenstance that I ended up being a comic. And then I started going to the Uptown clubs and Catch a Rising Star and all those, improv, all those places. Um, but I, I very easily could not have been a comedian. What else I would have done? I have no idea. It's the only thing I knew how to do at this point. Thankfully, you're incredible at it. And we have all gotten to reap the benefits of this very happy accident. Do you still feel like you're doing what you said of like playing? You're not yourself on stage, but you are always a heightened version of, of a character. It, well, you know, it's not it, the person I am on stage it's not like, well, Susie Green is a character. That's a character I play that I created. Um, my stage persona is definitely me. It's just me on stage, you know? So it's hard to describe because it, it's always a heightened uh, persona. It's it's not a character. Some comics go into this character persona that they do. That never really appealed to me. It, wh what I was talking about is I used to do these characters, just like do these different characters in my act um, and I never spoke in my own voice for about six months. And then I realized I had to figure out who I am on stage, which is really the hardest thing about being a comic is finding your voice and finding out what you are on stage. And it takes, I remember uh, Ronnie Shakes was a great comic and, and died young and he was very successful. He had done the Tonight Show many, many times. And he said to me one night, it's gonna take you five years to figure out who you are on stage. And I remember thinking, no, oh, I was arrogant. You know, I was like, oh, it's not gonna take me five years. I'll do it in, in a year. It took me 10 years really to figure out who I was on stage. It just takes, you know, people think that it's so easy to just be yourself. It's not so easy to just be yourself because you have to have a point of view and you have to have a voice. The best comics have a strong point of view and a strong voice. And, and you don't wanna 
imitate anyone else and you want it to be original, authentic to who you are, it's, it takes a long time to figure it out. Within that, moving beyond the comedy stage personas, you've played an incredible range of roles in film and TV from Curb Your Enthusiasm to Broad City to Law and Order. What do you look for in terms of criteria for a role and how do you determine if a, if a job or a character is right for you? Well, the writing is always essential, the first thing. If it, it has to be written well. Unfortunately for me, I'm in a little bit of a, uh, I have a, an issue with all of that because my most known character would be Susie Green from Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I get that part all the time. I get sent Susie Green parts all the time. And I don't want to do Susie Green. I've already done Susie Green. <laughs> so I turn down a lot of the stuff that I get offered because it's, it's too repetitive. You know, it's just not, it doesn't interest me creatively. I've already done it on probably, you know, nothing's funnier than Curb in my opinion. So on something that's so funny, I don't want to do a Susie Green light on something else. So that that's, but it's, it's always in the writing. If it's well-written, um, Broad City appealed to me because I loved Abby and Alana so much. And um, they actually came to me after their first season. I had never seen it and I had never seen the web series. And uh, they came, I had dinner with them one night. I had no idea who they were. And they took me out to dinner. They wined and dined me because they wanted me to play Alana's mother. And I just fell in love with them and was dying to work with them. And when I started watching it, I saw how creative and original they were. I, I just thought it would be just a great match for me. And it was, it has been. Their scripts are so well-written and they have an original voice as does Larry. So I, I'm really spoiled at this point, you know, really, really spoiled because I've worked with people at such a high level. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I could have gotten some crap sitcom on NBC or something, you know, one of these and these ones that just limp along year after year that you don't even know this, they're on the air. You don't even know what they are. And I would have taken it because I had to make a living. <laughs> but I got lucky. I got lucky and I didn't have to do that. I got to do, you know, some of the really highest quality comedy shows out there. And Susie and Bobby Wexler are two of my absolute favorites. And I think the world uh, very much agrees. Do you, uh, would you say that comedy today is harder in the current environment that we're in of very political correctness and people's reactions that are all over the internet? Is, is comedy more challenging today? Absolutely. And I'm very happy that I'm not in clubs uh, anymore because, you know, when I started, when I was doing comedy, first of all, everybody smoked in the clubs in those days. So that was like the negative, but the positive was it was this private thing, a comedy club. It was this like down and dirty. You could say whatever you wanted. You could push the envelope. You could be totally politically incorrect. You could, you know, you could really go out on a limb and we all did. And then you, you dial yourself back, but that's how you, you find, you find your material is by, by being willing to be bad and being and offensive. Good comedy is almost always offensive. If you're not offending somebody, you might as well just be a mime or a juggler. Um, but I, I feel so, uh, I don't want to say sorry for, that's not the right word, but I, I have uh, compassion for people coming up now because boy, are the rules so strict and political correctness is the death of comedy. It really is. It's just, I think there's just going to be this huge backlash and it's, everybody's going to turn into Don Rickles eventually and just, you know, but for he's a perfect example. He could never have worked today. 
never have worked today. So many great comedians couldn't work today. I don't think I could have worked today. I used to do all these characters that somebody would find as offensive. I had a, a well, what's one that I, I used to do this black radical activist. They would kill me for doing that today. Or I used to have uh, this Hispanic uh, president of the Menudo fan club. They would never let me do that today. You know, it's just, I think that this is a very difficult environment. People having phones, people tweeting in the middle of your set. I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. You know, worst came to worst, they could just get up and walk out if I offended someone. But now it's the world has to hear about it. And I think it's horrible. I really do. I think it's killing the art form. I will be making a bumper sticker that says political correctness is the death of comedy. And that will be on <laughs> that will be on my car. There's an upside to it. Like, for example, all the great movies from the I'm an old movie buff from the 40s and the 30s. And they had such stringent uh, rules about what they were allowed to show. And they found interesting ways to, you know, like you knew they were having sex if they went through a tunnel. You know what I mean? And, and the train would go through the tunnel. You hear woo woo, and you knew that they had sex. You didn't see it. So I, 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 I suppose that with all these stringent rules, people can find creative ways to deal with it. But it's really a shame. You are on a show, though, that kind of works within that premise, which is like finding ways to deal with uh, controversial issues and political correctness, but does it in a way that like turns it up on its end. Can you talk about Susie Green in relation to Curb and where the persona came from, how you deal with what you were just talking about, about not being always PC? Larry does not care at all about being politically correct. He doesn't care at all about offending people. He doesn't even think about that. So I'm on a show that does not, if, if people don't like it, just don't watch it. it. He really, really doesn't care. Uh, and that's tremendous. And we have that freedom because we're on HBO, we're not on network and, and nobody tells him what to do. He does whatever he wants to do. And there are things that, and he's equal opportunity offender. You know, I mean, he has offended every ethnic group, uh, uh, every you know, handicap, I mean, everybody he has offended. So I, I feel tremendous freedom working on that show because I never even think about it. I never even think about it. I never think I can't do this now. You know, I, I, I'm going to be, it's going to be too offensive. It's going to be too much. I don't even think about it. I have tremendous freedom on that show to do whatever I want. How I created the character, you know, we've been doing this since 2000. So it's 21 years we've been doing this show, 11 seasons in 21 years. He called me, he had, Larry had seen me on a roast, a friar's roast of Jerry Stiller that I did in 1999. And roasts, you know, the whole nature of a roast is you have to be totally filthy. And it was, it was a uh, very jokey. And um, I had some really politically incorrect jokes on that. And Larry had this idea for this character of Jeff's wife, and he had a scene in mind in the first season. Um, and I had known Larry since 1986 from back doing stand-up together. And he then moved to LA to do Seinfeld and I stayed in New York, so I hadn't seen him for years. And he had this idea, there was a, in season one of Curb, there was a show called The Wire where Jeff has a fresh air fund kid stay at his house and the kid robs he and his wife blind. So Larry had that scene in mind that he wanted a, like a crazy screaming wife to just, you know, yell and scream at Jeff and just go for it. I hadn't seen him in years. He saw me on the roast and I was 
filthy on the roast. And he was like, oh, light bulb, Susie, she could do this. You know, it's, it's right up her alley. So he called me and he offered me the job. It was very, uh, I didn't have a contract. It was, I got day scale. I got day scale for like the first three or four seasons. It was not, we, we were just very much under the radar. Um, you know, it's all improvised. There was no script. It, it, I remember when he called me, he was like, I got a job for you. You want it? I was like, well, send me the script. There's no script. You play Jeff Garland's wife. Well, what's the character? Don't worry about it. You can do the character. It's, 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 it's easy for you. You'll be able to. I was like, all right, fine. He's like, but there's no money. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. I knew that, you know, he was a genius and I wanted to work with him and I love him so much. So the first season, oh, so we were doing that first, that, that scene uh, where the only direction he gave me was, I want you to rip Jeff a new asshole. And I thought, well, I've been in relationships. I could do this. That's easy. And in the scene, I'm screaming at him. I'm cursing at him. And Larry keeps on pulling me aside and says, go further, go further. I'm going far. Like I'm really, you know, I'm really. And then he pulls me aside. He says, make fun of Jeff's fat. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't like to make fun of people's physical characteristics. And it's mean and just do it. Just do it. He knows you're kidding. Just do it. He knows you're only acting. So I did. That was the first time I called him a fat fuck. And, you know, the genie was out of the bottle. And that kind of became uh, Susie's catchphrase. But we were shooting in a in this house up in the in the Hollywood Hills. And I just looked around at the decor and the furniture, and I just came up with this idea of how Susie was going to dress. I just came up with this idea that I wanted her to be totally outrageous in her outfits, but completely confident and believe that she has the greatest taste in the whole world. It was just something that came to me. I have never discussed the character in all these years with Larry. We've never had a discussion about it. I just did my, what I wanted to do, and he got what I was doing and then wrote more kinds of uh, scenarios towards that character. And then, you know, so he got what I was doing and I got what he wanted. And we just, we had a dialogue of the unconscious all these years. We've never discussed the character. And yet it is brilliant in every line, in every glance, how much of Susie is in you? How much, how much do you share with her? Well, you know, she's very different from me because I always like to play a character I, I'm with myself 24 seven. I don't need to be myself. <laughs> I always like to play something more character and something more fun. So, I mean, she's like me in the fact that I could, I could go Susie Green. It's, it's going Susie Green has become like a verb in my family. Uh, I could go Susie Green on customer service people, for example, you know, that kind of a thing. I could, they could really piss me off. But in general, I am not as volatile as she is. <laughs> Um, and I'm much more analytic. Susie Green's completely reactive. You know, you say something to her, she responds. And she's completely confident in, in her, that she's always right and her opinions are right. She doesn't second guess, she doesn't question. I'm the opposite, I'm a comedian. I'm second guessing, questioning, uh, you, you know, craziness and neuroses about everything. Susie Green has no neuroses whatsoever. She just is, you know, and, and, and there were always these girls in high school that always seemed so confident I, and they always surprised me. I, I was always fascinated by them because that was not me. You know, I was always so insecure. Um, and I kind of was channeling those girls when I started to be Susie, that they were just confident that, that you know, you say this and I say that and there's no second guessing it. And she's sure in her opinions about everything. I love it. Is it freeing to, to be that, to play that character? Oh, it's so it is so freeing to, to play Susie Green. I First of all, the screaming and the yelling and the cursing, you know, I mean, 
when I accept that I lose my voice by the end of the day, but when I have scenes where I'm really, really letting Larry or Jeff have it and screaming, I go to bed at night. I'm just so relaxed. <laughs> it's like primal scream therapy. It's the greatest. <laughs> That's awesome. You get paid for, you get paid for self-therapy as, as Susie. Um, you, you know, you, you know, you know what my job is basically I show up, I tell everybody to go fuck themselves. They love me for it. Then they give me money and I go home. I have the best job in show business. It's the, and I don't have to learn lines, which is always really, really, you know, stressful. You're up the night before going over because it's all improvised. So it's just, it's my favorite job ever. What is it like not working with scripts on Curb? And has a scene ever gone differently than it was kind of outlined? Or does it just go where, where you land? Well, you know, there's an outline. There's a very specific outline because Larry is all story. I mean, Larry's genius, I think. He's a genius at many things. But the main thing is story. He could put together interlocking well you know if you watch the show you see how how everything comes calls back and nothing everything happens for a reason um there are times when really funny stuff happens in the improv that has to be taken away because it does not further the story it's all about furthering the story so we get the outline it's about a paragraph per scene of what has to happen in that scene no dialogue is written unless there's something specific that has to be said for story purposes um so we know, we know like what the information, we know what, where we have to get to. We know what the scene is about. We know what our relationships are with one another. So it just kind of, it writes itself. You know, we just start playing with it. Sometimes it takes us on average, I would say it takes us about seven or eight takes to really find the scene. Sometimes we find it right away, um, but we just play with it and just figure it. And then, and, and we, we, it takes us a while to find the scene and then we just set it and then we just do it. But there are things Larry has said that for 95% of the time, he couldn't have written something better than the actors are writing. 5% of the time, he wishes he wrote it ahead of time. But 95% of the time, he's, we come up with stuff that he never could have thought of. And it, that's what's so much fun because it's so collaborative. I mean, we're all writing this. It's just, it's just great. And we're all, most of us are comedians. So we know how to improvise. A lot of actors have difficulty, like actor actors. Who are used to having everything scripted in advance. Yeah. 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 Um, just stepping back with the show in general, what do you think of the fact that it has become this phenomenon after two decades and about to go on to 11 seasons? Like it's, everybody quotes the show. The theme song is my ringtone for my uh, for my voicemail. Like, what do you think of its of its impact and its and its kind of cultural appeal right now? It's crazy. It's crazy that we've been doing this for so long. We're just we're all old now at this point. You know, we started actually we started we were all old, and now here we are twenty one years later. Um, I think I think it's great. I think it's great because it, it is so politically incorrect in these times. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's very unusual to have second acts like that. You know, Larry had such a huge success with Seinfeld. And then to come back and have a second act with Curb, which is to me even it's not more successful in the sense of the numbers, but it, more successful, I think, comedically in a lot of ways, uh, because it's not network, because it's HBO and because we have such freedom. 
um, that we could really push the envelope on it. it it's amazing. It's, 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 it's joyful. It's, we have so much fun making it. I mean, we laugh all day long and it's just a joyful experience to be a part of this and, and to, it, this is going to sound so Pollyanna and, and nauseating, but to bring so many people pleasure. So, so, so many people love the show. I, I like that, you know, people stop me in the street and they just tell me all kinds of, you know, I don't know, my father was dying and he watched the show every day and things like that. And it's, it's I kind of feel good that I'm putting something positive into the world with all my yelling and screaming and cursing. Somehow it's a positive thing. <laughs> to what you just said about um, uh, being on HBO, HBO, even in the last 20 years has, has changed and the concept of premium TV has changed. What does this mean in terms of the types of roles that you look at and the, and the, the demographics of, of your fan base? We're kind of looking at a different age of premium television now that there are so many options on streaming. Can you talk at all about the way that television in general of late has been impacted? Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about when we air, the, the fact that we're just going to be on once a week for 10 weeks is so weird to me right now, you know, that we can't see all 10 episodes at once. It's just so, it, it's, it's just, it, it, it's just telling about how quickly we change our patterns and our habits. Um, television's in a golden age. I mean, I, I have no interest to go to movies. I don't know anybody who could, well, now pandemic, but even pre-pandemic, uh, television is, is just, um, it's just amazing things on television. Um, but I think that what you could do in television that you can't do in a movie is you could tell a story that's longer than two hours. So you really get to know your characters and you really get to, to love them or hate them and be involved with them in a much deeper way than, than you can with a movie, I think. I, I have no idea where it's going. I never for, I'm not, you know, I'm not a forecaster. I never foresaw, you know, thought this was gonna happen. So I, I don't know where it's going. I mean, I hope it's going to a good place. It seems to be a lot of really great stuff on TV right now, a lot of great stuff. There is no shortage, even with the year of uh, less television production, I think, of amazing. Like my list is, is endless. Here's my question, you know, from an advertising point of view, I don't I have no understanding of how anybody makes money. I mean, I know it's subscription and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But from an advertising point of view, I think it's really, really challenging for for you guys. A lot of stuff has changed, but a lot is still very much the same in terms of we haven't completely broken out of the regular rhythm of 30 and 15 second spots being the bread and butter. But I think stuff is dramatically changing. And I think that um, we're in a world where we're going to go back to the cable model in essence, but it's going to be bundles of subscription services and hopefully the quality will be better across the board. That's interesting. Okay, I'll buy that. Have you changed the way that you watch TV in the last few years? Oh, yeah. I stream all the time now. I mean, I, I barely watch network except for sports and news and, uh, you know, things of that. And I, I don't think I watch at all except for sports and news. In terms of like the demographic of the fan base for a network like HBO, do you think that that has changed by virtue of the fact that now HBO isn't exclusive to only a very small subset of people, that it's much more accessible now to everybody? 
Um, yeah, I mean, more people can watch. What's interesting about about fan bases is people make assumptions about Curb, about what our fan base is. It's, it's like if I go into Zabar's on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, everybody there assumes that they're the only ones that get Curb because it's very New York Jewish kind of sensibility and sense of humor. I have been stopped by people all over the world, by every ethnicity, by every, because funny is funny. It just, it doesn't matter what, you know, what, who we are specifically, it's funny. And it's, it's so silly, funny curb, you know, that, that I think it has a huge appeal to all sorts of people and it's political incorrectness, I think is appealing. Political incorrectness is a universal quality for sure. Speaking about Curb and its impact, what what have been the moments that have made an impact on you, maybe uh, behind the scenes or off camera? What have been the most impactful moments for you as an actress? Well, one of my greatest joys in life is making Larry laugh. Um, And I'm lucky that he loves being yelled at. That's his favorite thing in the entire world. So I make him laugh nonstop all day long. That's what we do. We just, I go to work. I'm always in character and I start yelling and screaming at him. He gets the giggles. He has roomed all my best takes, every one of my best takes. Cause my best takes are usually first or second ones. You know, when I'm really, you know, when I have to really rev it up. Um, so, so that's the, the friendships that I've made and the collaborative uh, nature of our work it's just impacted me hugely as an artist because it's given me incredible freedom. It's just given me freedom. I mean, that's the greatest thing about it. And I think any artist will tell you that, that to have artistic freedom is just, it's a gift beyond. And HBO, by the way, has been uh, just, they're wonderful to work for. They really are. They, they support their artists. They really take care of their talent. I've always felt cared for by them. Uh, they have never, ever, I don't think they've ever given Larry notes and told him not to do anything. They've never limited him, which is a, an amazing thing because it's not how it works on networks. If you do a show on networks, you just get notes like crazy and from a lot of times from people who don't know what they're talking about. And it's a problem. It's a problem for creativity. It's not how it works anywhere. That's amazing. I am super yeah. jealous. Um, it, you, you, you've been quoted saying that Curb is the greatest job ever. Is it elements like that that contribute to why it's been such an amazing experience? Yeah, it's, it's the complete freedom. It's the fun. It's I could get to say whatever I want. I don't inhibit myself. You know, the, the only direction I ever get from Larry usually is take it down or bring it up, you know, and I'll usually go many different levels, you know, cause I, I don't always know. Um, like for example, if there's a scene right before mine where somebody is, you know, just ripping him to shreds and yelling and screaming, I don't want to do that in my scene because you have to think of the rhythm of the entire piece. So I like to, you know, bring different elements to it. There's a, there's more than goes into it than just screaming and yelling. <laughs> Are you ever involved in the uh, in the post-production aspect then? Do you ever get to see cuts or contribute to how the story comes together? Uh, no, I, I, they do all the editing. I, he'll send me cuts before they're finished, but not really for my input, just because he knows I can't wait to see it. But you're kind of doing the editing in your head, it sounds, as you're going to yeah. know how it all needs to come together. Yeah, you know, one of the things that Larry does is, he, let's change a little the past year or so, uh, but he, for many, many years, he would not let any of the guest stars or any of the actors read the outlines. And the reason was that he didn't want them 
you know, lying in bed the night before coming up with what they thought were funny lines. Cause that's, that's like, then you're like in a bad sitcom, you know, really when you're improvising, you talk and you listen and you respond and you're in the scene. Um, but he always let me read the outlines. And I was always glad of that because it was important to me, not that I would come up with bad sitcom lines ahead of time, but it was important to me to know what was happening before and after in a scene. So I would know the tone that was necessary for, for the piece as a whole. And he knows that I do that. He knows that I, that I, that I, you know, look at the, like, I'll read the outline before I go to work, you know, that morning or whatever. Okay. This scene, we're doing this scene. So I, I need whatever, just, just so I, I see the piece as a whole and I contribute what I contribute to it from, for, for the good of the episode, not for what I personally want as an actress. You have to be unselfish when you're improvising. And it's context. It's like you said, knowing what's, what, right. what comes and what, what part you play. Um, did you get to keep the Susie portrait? I did. It's hanging in my bathroom. Phenomenal. <laughs> yes. Was, was there more than yes. one made? Yes, there were several made. There were several. There was some made of you know the perfect one. Then there were ones made with the tomato splashed on it, and then there were several made that were you know slashed apart and ripped apart. So not several. There was probably two or three of each. You know, backup. So I have the the pre tomato splash one, um, but and it's huge. And, you know, where was I going to hang it? It's not going to go over my mantelpiece. So I thought, oh, the powder room. So when guests come over and they have to use the bathroom, they see Susie Green. There you go. It's perfect in there. It's, it's beloved by people that go, go to the bathroom in my home. That is the best <laughs> surprise. Um, is that one of the better um, mementos you've gotten from her? It's probably the only one. Well, usually each each season, I take one Susie Green outfit that I never wear because who would dress like that crazy woman? But I like to have, I've, I've auctioned them off at times, you know, for charity. Um, but I like to keep just one memento outfit. They are priceless. Um, speaking of season 11, what can we expect from uh, what's coming up? Well, I'm really not allowed to say anything, but I will, I'll tell you a few things. It takes place in a post-COVID world. So there's not, I mean, there's, there's one or two little references to some things that happened, but it's not, there's not a whole lot of pandemic crap in there. Um, we're all back. Jeff, Cheryl, me, JB, Ted, um, Richard Lewis, thankfully got to do an episode. He was written into a lot, but he was, he had some surgeries and he couldn't, but he got to do one episode, which I was really happy about. Uh, uh, I will at some point be kicking Larry out of my house as usual. And I will be uh, yelling and screaming and Jeff's cheating on me again. What can I tell you? It, it's like his best quality that he knows how to do better than anything else. It's, it's one of yeah, his. It's really, he's so good at it. Very good point. Um, we are all very excited about it. I, I read a, a wonderful quote um, about uh, your role in Broad City which leads me into the next question of um, it shouldn't be surprising for a show constantly praised for its progressive portrayal of feminism, race, class, and sexuality in a show that champions every type of womanhood. Bobby is the winning kvetch. And I think that Bobby and Susie and a lot of your other personas um, really are uh, different examples of, of womanhood. Um, what advice would you give to a young female comedian starting out? And, and how do you see you as, as a role model for these different types of female personalities? Well, you know, 
that's a multi-part question. One of the interesting things about working on Broad City to me is um, working with Abby and Alana who write, direct, produce, act. They do so many things that, and they do it brilliantly and well and effortlessly. When I was coming up, it was not on the menu. It never occurred to me that I could do all those things. As it was, what I was doing was so off the menu, just being a, stand, a female stand-up comic. There were so few of us. Um, and the role models that I had for comedians, uh, most of them were not females because I think in the day, uh, the, the Joan Rivers and Phyllis Dillers and the Toady Fields, and there were so few of them, and they were all self-deprecating and I think they had to be. I think that the audience would not have accepted them if they were not, you know, if they were not turning themselves in first. It, it was very, very hard as a female. And when I started doing stand-up, I was very conscious of not doing that, you know, of not talking about how fat my thighs were or how the ugly I was or how, you know, whatever. Um, because it and and I had to struggle through that. And 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 I think that. Uh, things have changed. I think that, that that women have owned their sexuality, that they've owned their 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 individuality. Uh, my advice would be to any young female comic would be to, well, to any comic, find your voice. And this sounds so cliche, but you have to be authentic to yourself. It, it, it's you don't want somebody else's voice. When I was coming up, there was all this whole group of male comics that were doing Jerry Seinfeld. They were, they were, they had Jerry's voice. That was the voice that they copied. Well, Jerry did it already, and Jerry did it better than you're going to do it. Find your own fucking voice. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's, a, it's really a challenge. But that's, that's the only way that you're going to be successful. I think is just by really figuring out what. And everybody has their own voice. There's nobody that doesn't. And if you're funny and you're a comedian, you know, we just we just see more things than the rest of the world comics. I think we see things and then we filter them through some really twisted prism that we have in our head and spit them out. And then people say, oh, my God, I never thought of that before. And that and that surprise or whatever it is, is what makes them laugh. Um, that just being really stupid and silly. But that would be my advice. And, and also. This is a hard thing to say because everything changes and everything is cyclical. And this whole, this whole, you know, uh, political correctness and cancel culture, it's not going to be here forever. So I would really kind of not have that in your head when you're writing material. Don't let something like that stifle you because that's, it's, a, it's, it's not only a comedy killer, it's a creativity killer. Well, we love your voice so much. Thank you for uh, speaking with us. This was an amazing conversation. Um, we love you, Susie Essman. Well, thank you, Alexis. It's a pleasure talking to you. 